If all we're feeling is the Fed's very first rate hike, and they have hiked in aggregate 500 basis points more, in all likelihood, we are in for some shit, pardon my French, over the next several months. If the reality is that credit is already starting to slow, right, which is the velocity of money, but then as credit goes, so too does economic growth. And there are some disconcerting leading indicators that point to we're probably headed for uh, some kind of uh, some kind of pretty bad recession. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We got Joe on the line. Joe, how's it going? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to uh, to talk. With yeah. You so I think we've been connected on Twitter for quite some time. Definitely share, you know, similar passions and Bitcoin and and health and fitness and yeah, it's been a, a long time coming. I guess so it's good to connect uh, and see what's going on, Joe. You got like a good pulse, I was saying, on kind of the state of the market, all markets, I guess, right now, the macroeconomic landscape. So I'm really curious to to dig into that. But maybe to give the listeners some some background first on who you are, what you do. Um, how did you kind of get into, you know, the Bitcoin space and kind of, yeah, being on top of, you know, you know, the running the Bitcoin layer and all these things? How did you come to be in, in, in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, initially what I wanted to do was ex- basically exactly what I'm doing now. Uh, but it's a very, um, you can't necessarily go on LinkedIn and scan for, uh, you know, jobs to be a uh, markets analyst. It's kind of a very niche thing. Um, if you want to do it, chances are you won't be working independently. You'll be working on a desk somewhere some crummy desk in Boston where I have a, an hour and a half long commute despite only being 20 minutes outside the city. So not something that I wanted to do. Um, and so I took, a, I took a different route. I published my research independently on Twitter. Um, I went to, to college up at UVM. And one of the cool things that they had was complimentary Bloomberg terminals. And I, I promise you, I'm not making this up. I think I was like the only one in my entire class at the business school that took <laughs> the school up on that offer and got a complimentary Bloomberg terminal subscription. And uh, I, I, I hammered the hell out of that, pardon my French, for um, basically the entire time that I was up at school. The unfortunate thing was we got sent home for COVID in March of 2020. And, uh, you know, that wasn't very fun. And that introduced, basically, I was, you know, at that time, I was, uh, I was basically teaching myself the Bloomberg Terminal, really getting deeply involved in markets and just learning all the mechanics of it. Um, I wasn't trading at the time. And uh, there was a period where I was trading. I certainly put on fewer trades than I used to. I'm mostly uh, analyzing markets and, and researching it and synthesizing it for readers on Twitter and obviously Substack and YouTube. But we got sent home for COVID and I was very jaded towards those in authority, like general bureaucracy, even more so than I was. Um, and that led me to uh, sort of the root of all of it, the root of all uh, unelected bureaucratic meddling, and that's the Federal Reserve. Um, we being sent home from COVID, I was very jaded at the um, the, high, the the U.S. government, and the higher authority for for what they did, but also my school for how poorly they treated the students and um, how inhumane it it sort of was. Like particularly up at UVM, up in Vermont, um, 
you know, that they, they feign compassion quite a bit, uh, like the Vermont area and um, particularly the university staff members. The whole idea is that they're extremely compassionate. We're just tree huggers. We love everybody, blah, blah, blah. But they couldn't be further from the truth. Like they turned completely totalitarian when all of this COVID stuff happened. And uh, it, it really turned me turned me against like these these, these big bureaucratic uh, institutions. And so um, that's when I got into Bitcoin really heavily. My buddy, Tyler LaRoche, who, uh, who I was friends with, up at college and he works at Bitcoin Inc. today. He uh, gave me two papers to read, um, The Master, Masters and Slaves of Money by Breedlove and then uh, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by VJ. And uh, I read both of those, absolutely fell in love with it. That summer, um, and, and this was around October, the summer previous, so um, you know, right after we get sent home from COVID, I ran a, t- a small business and I had some capital to deploy, dumped it all into Bitcoin, which was a really good, really good timing. That was when Bitcoin was like eight or nine K and ran all the way up to 60. And, um, you know, I was shitting myself because, uh, my, my tiny little baby investment of, uh, just s- small five figure sum was now, uh, worth way more than I could even imagine. So, uh, I, I got hooked initially for the, um, you know, anti-establishment aspect of it and, uh, the idea of sound money, right. The sort of the root of all, the root of all evil being this perpetual credit expansion, um, and the, the debt, the deleterious impacts it, ha- it has had on our global economy, productivity, livelihood, all of that. And, um, you know, the, the way that credit markets function is just this uh, extremely skewed incentive structure that uh, encourages and incentivizes um, just taking on as much debt as possible, even when you don't need it. And that leads to huge capital misallocation. And um, that's what I got into Bitcoin for. And I, I, you know, the number go up kind of surprised me. It wasn't initially the reason that I got into it. Um, but even today, I, I still view Bitcoin as a, uh, it, it hasn't changed. I view Bitcoin as a, you know, an asset that you want to allocate to if you want to shield yourself from all of this nonsense. Um, this regime of continually expanding credit at lower and lower and lower rates, people just taking on debt because that's the game, because they have to, you have to play the game or you'll die. Um, and uh, at an individual level, at a business level, and at a nation level, this you, this is something you can allocate to to hedge against that. If you think that, that is going to be what happens in perpetuity, then that's something you can hedge yourself against. And so now, basically, what I started doing was publishing my research on uh, Twitter around uh, spring of last year, spring of 2022. And then Nick Batia saw my research and he brought me on board to work with him on the Bitcoin layer. And now we've turned it from a Substack publication into a full-blown media outlet on all podcast platforms, on YouTube, on Substack. And of course, still still ripping Twitter very, very often. But uh, but yeah, that's a little bit about me where... Uh, what, what, where I started. What I'm yeah, doing. I think that's such a cool journey. And yeah, like you're saying, I don't think there's a lot of, you know, young people uh, that probably went deep like you did. So clearly you saw you could like take an advantage and then, you know, that path led to Bitcoin, which is awesome. But I'm curious, you know, what was, how drastic was that like mind shift, mindset shift or that, uh, you know, awakening for you? Like before all this, you know, I, I guess you're at UVM, so it's pretty liberal up there. Like, were, were you pretty on board with everything oh, that yeah. was going on? And then this was just like a total wake up call, or like, how drastic was that shift? Yeah, so it certainly wouldn't be as drastic as it as it probably it wasn't as drastic as it probably would have been for the the your standard UVM student. Um, growing up outside of Boston, I grew up thankfully. My county is extremely red, so my county is extremely conservative. And that's good. I was brought up in a in a Christian household. Um, you know, we, we became jaded from the church for a good deal of time because they stopped preaching about uh, they stopped preaching the Bible entirely. And they started preaching about like world events. And then they would draw it back to the Bible with these loose analogies. And so we 
got kind of jaded from the church for a while, but we, we found a new church. We've been there for, for almost a year now, but backing it up, thankfully I had a relatively conservative upbringing. Um, and, uh, the reason I went to UVM was because a is beautiful and B they gave me the most money. Right. Uh, I applied to a, gr- a whole host of all of the Massachusetts colleges, all the, uh, I got into the state schools. Yeah. I, and I applied to the Boston colleges. Um, you know, your, your, your MITs, your Harvard's, your, uh, uh, your BU, your BC, um, your Northeastern's. The only one I got into was Northeastern, um, and, uh, also BC, but, um, neither of them gave me basically any money. And so I couldn't go there, uh, cause that would be extremely stupid for a business degree student. Uh, well, at the time I wanted to go for medicine, I wanted to go to school for medicine, uh, but I ended up going to UVM cause they gave me the most money. But thankfully I went into this environment. Um, not because I really agreed with the, the student populace, but because I was, uh, you know, they gave me the most money and it was a beautiful campus. Um, and also the business school, the benefit of uh, being in the business school is that most people lean that way as well, right? Most people don't go to business school, um, you know, and, uh, and, and they enter as these, uh, you know, kind of liberal hippie types. Um, they generally go in more, more conservative, as conservative as you can get in, uh, in Vermont. And thankfully, I was, I was in that environment, right? So it wasn't too huge of a paradigm shift when I discovered Bitcoin. I was already sort of of that mindset, um, despite living in Massachusetts and going, in, going to college in Vermont. Um, I certainly don't think, uh, thankfully, I'm, I'm blessed that I, don't, uh, I, I didn't have that kind of upbringing. And so when, uh, when Bitcoin came to me, um, it, seemed, uh, it seemed so incredibly natural and so incredibly obvious. Um, and, and, and thankfully, uh, it, it came to me in that fashion rather than the fashion that I know a great deal of people take, which is um, these crypto scams, right? The quote unquote crypto, which is all this just this big affinity scam um, surrounding Bitcoin, and what Bitcoin has been able to do with no marketing budget on its own, just by per- pure virtue of what it stands for as an asset. Thankfully, I wasn't suckered in by those. And then I had to learn the hard way. Thankfully, I came in from the hu- human so- sovereignty standpoint. And just jump straight into Bitcoin. Yeah, I always envy you guys that just go like straight into Bitcoin maximalism. Like, you know, I mean, I learned the hard way for a couple of years after getting, you know, just finding out about crypto in 2017. And, you know, you're, you're in college. I, that was when I was in college and you're just kind of excited. You don't even know what the hell is going on. But all roads eventually lead to Bitcoin. So uh, here now, of course. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's good because, yeah, you know, Vermont can definitely be a little... A little crazy, but it's a good point from the business perspective. I think anyone who like understands the dynamic of like business, uh, how it actually functions and what you need to know and how to leverage debt and things like that, you kind of inherently have this perspective that probably the vast majority of the population of society doesn't. So I'm curious, do do you think like what you learned in school was like valuable? I'm always, you know, people who are like successful later on uh, in markets or, you know, just analyzing things with like a fresh perspective, like how much of that foundational knowledge was taught in in your actual academia? Right. So that's a tough question because looking back on it, the majority of the stuff that I use today, I learned independently Mm -hmm. and I learned through avenues like, like mentors and Twitter which sounds incredibly strange, but if you can use Twitter in such a way that you are not endlessly, mindlessly consuming, but you really curate what you consume very closely, you can get a very good education from Twitter and, uh, and reading books, right? Um, and so that's where I got a great deal of what I use today. I won't say all of the degree was useless. I, I did get a double major in uh, finance and economics. The economics degree, largely useless. Um, I do know uh, 
all of the economics jargon that anybody could throw at me now. But uh, obviously, being up, being in any university setting, what you are being taught is is Keynesian economics, um, and uh, that you know this very very skewed um, paradigm of the uh, the way that the world works that isn't uh, even remotely true, right? Sort of reducing people to numbers, um, thinking of aggregate spending as the end all be all, right? And that uh, spending is uh, spurious of economic growth. And uh, it's, uh, you know, interest rates can can set reality. Um, all of these kind of nonsensical, very loose things um, that, uh, that don't actually apply in the real world, um, in the Austrian world, um, where people aren't just numbers, right? They're, they're individual creatures. Uh, so, uh, I, I will say a lot of what I learned in econ, apart from the, the terminology was pretty, pretty useless today. Uh, but also being in an environment that, uh, allow that, that you're, you're being taught in a university setting and it, it, it sort of builds up your own mental anti-fragility per se, because if you are in a school learning a topic that's completely, uh, adjacent to yours, uh, you're learning, you're learning the counter argument per se, right? If, if you're like, you know, let's say I absolutely hated underwater basket weaving, it would probably behoove me to take some underwater basket weaving classes to learn what, you know, why it's so wrong or whatever. And so having all these courses, these, these very, you know, starting from low level to very high level and involved courses, um, it, it was useful because it allowed me to see, uh, it, it allowed me to unpack it on my own rather than just being sort of a bystander and outsider and shitting on all of the concepts, the business degree though, uh, the finance degree, that was quite useful. Um, not necessarily the degree itself, but some of the classes that I took and some of the professors that I had very knowledgeable people. And, um, obviously when, when you're, when you're in college, you know, that there's, there's exams, there's homework, there's this, that, and the other thing. But I, the most value that I derived was being involved outside of my courses. Um, you know, build cultivating these relationships with professors individually, and also doing a great deal of work that wasn't in the classroom. So I did a lot of business case competitions, which was basically being given a hypothetical set of problems and, and given a set time frame to work within and certain constraints that you needed to do in order to solve that problem. And uh, that was one of the most fulfilling things for me because being in sort of, it, it allowed you to be sort of in a high pressure business situation, but of course with no fear because it's all, it's all make-believe, it's all pretend. And so that's where I got the most value doing those case competitions, but also in my free time, teaching myself the Bloomberg terminal, having all of these books at my disposal, having Twitter as a mechanism, and also having these mentors uh, in real life and on Twitter to learn from. So that's the university experience does have value, but you, you're not going to get it all if you just sit in the classroom, absorb 10% of what is being said and leave. You got to just like curating content to learn from on Twitter and not using it as a vessel for cheap dopamine and just consuming. Um, you got to curate your university experience too. And I, I feel like I was able to do that pretty well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great perspective. I think it's like, it's pretty nuanced. People want to just put these blanket statements out there that like, you know, universities are not worth it unless you're like, you know, getting a high paying job right out the bat or what have you. But yeah, it's always good to get someone's perspective because um, especially when you are, you know, working in that field later on with a whole entire different view of, you know, everything that <laughs> you were taught, which is really fascinating. And I want to get into kind of maybe the, the differences between Keynesian and Austrian economics. But before we do that, it's like you have to kind of like unlearn or, um, you know, have this unbiased perspective. So it's it's interesting to say that, you know, you're 
you're using the example of, you know, you're going to see the other side, like you're, you're considering that other side, seeing what, how they kind of try and convince you that this is the way. And that almost like strengthens uh, a position. And, and I often tell people to do that, right? Like if you believe in something, you know, how to reaffirm your position is go consider the other perspective and like try and poke holes in your own argument. Like, and, and taking that all in is valuable, but you know, for some professions, it's really hard to unlearn what, you know, you did in or what you were taught in college, I would say in, in university. And, uh, for me, I feel like it's, it's nice, you know, as an engineering student, you know, but I'm really into like health and Bitcoin. Like I never had any like preconceived really like, uh, bad notions. I was just kind of, yeah, I didn't go to medical school. I didn't go to school for business or economics. So I'm kind of like, it was like a fresh slate, but it's, uh, you know, obviously for me, engineering is, is, it's uh, it was a good starting path, but of course I don't use like a vast majority of the classes I took. So I I think it's different for everybody, but it's what you make of it. And Twitter is a great example too. Uh, you could scroll all day, or like you're saying, you can curate it and actually learn a ton. Um, but you got to be careful you don't get you don't get sucked in for for a little too long. But yeah, why don't we dive into a little bit of kind of the, you know, the background of why things are the way they are. We've had, you know, a few Bitcoiners on the show, probably more health focused episodes, but want to get more Bitcoiners on here, of course. And I don't think we've really talked about like the economic background. So, you know, what is the what are the major differences between like, you know, the Keynesian school of thought, the Austrian school of thought and why? We are taught what we're taught in universities, which is of the, you know, from the Keynes school, really. Like foundationally, how are they different and why is that a problem? Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Right. Yeah. So with the Keynesian school of economics, there is this very central idea that it, it, everything hinges on uh, consumption and spending and the aggregate level of spending and the aggregate level of consumption in an economy. And uh, because you are prioritizing basically the output uh, above all else, it creates these huge distortions because if what you're prioritizing is the output, you're prioritizing the aggregate level of spending. It doesn't matter what is, what capital is being uh, uh, allocated to uh, as long as uh, number go up at the end of the day, the aggregate level of spending. And that is your metric. That's your barometer for economic growth. But we've seen why that's kind of nonsensical over the last 15 years, especially since the great financial crisis. If, you know, if aggregate level of spending is all that mattered, then why has the quality of life for the last 15 years had a market decline um, in the United States, right? Let's use the United States as an example, because our problems that we face here are much worse than than anywhere else in the Western world. If the aggregate level of spending was all that mattered, then why is everything so much more unaffordable today, right? Uh, Why can I go to the store to Target and buy a carton of eggs for like four sixty? And in 2009, when I was eight years old, you could buy it for half that price. And then in the year 1990, you could buy it for half that price. And then in 1970, 1971, you could buy it for half that price. Um, If economic growth, real economic growth, 
always hinges on the aggregate level of spending, then why in real terms are people more destitute than they have ever been? And they're increasingly more destitute. Um, well, it's because uh, the idea that all you need to grow an economy and to have a healthy, thriving populace uh, is uh, spending at an individual level, level, at a business level, and at a country level, um, that's a flawed notion. Uh, we're seeing the fallout of that with the U.S. government. The U.S. government is a perfect example. If spending was all that mattered, why, uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, one of the ideas uh, that's that's thrown around by Keynesians so often and thrown around by um, uh, 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 communists, I guess, and socialists is well, without the government, who would build these roads? Who would build these roads? And, and Keynesian economics has this huge focus on uh, government as taking up a lot of those. Uh, not menial tasks, but tasks that are that that the, those businesses that need to be shared by the citizenry of a nation, like building roads and general infrastructure. And they they say that private enterprise, uh, they sort of n- neglect private enterprise and say that the government can take on those roles. Well, again, when when you are the government and you are, you know, uh, obviously the central bank is independent, right? They're not independent, but when you are to it, when you are basically right there with the entity that can create money um, and that can purchase your bonds in order to fund all of this spending, it doesn't matter if you do a good job or not. Just like with Keynesian economics, it, it doesn't you know if all that matters is spending, it doesn't matter what's what's getting allocated to. And so, what 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 this has caused, what a huge focus on just spending above all else, getting that two percent real GDP target every single year, uh, it has caused basically uh, this mass, uh, you know. It, People, people living extremely unhappily uh, and capital being misallocated. With, with the era of zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing, these huge asset purchases by the Federal Reserve and basically just uh, bailing out banks implicitly over and over and over and over again for banks, doesn't matter who they write loans to. It doesn't matter. Uh, business loans used to be extended because somebody had a business plan. They had, a, they had an idea that they knew that they could work. They had a team that could execute on it. They had land allocated to it. They had workers, blah, 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 blah. They had plenty of collateral. Um, you know, that, we're talking 1940s, 50s, 60s, back when economic growth actually represented these, these, uh, these worthwhile businesses being created using money, using borrowed money. Uh, and now, because rates have had this 50-year-long 50, 50 downtrend, now all that capital allocation is, is borrowing cheaply because money is so cheap. You're just borrowing. Um, you don't even need to have necessarily this very robust business plan. You just need to have something else that you could invest that money in at a slightly higher rate. Right. And whether that's these Airbnbs that you go and you go and get mortgages on and you can you can generate revenue above that or whether it's, uh, you know, um, but, but literally anything um, with rates locked at zero. People aren't allocating capital because they have a, a worthwhile project to pursue. They're allocating capital specifically because money is so cheap. And when that happens, uh, society is worse off for it. Right. Um, and that's essentially the, the byproduct of, of uh, uh, Keynesian economics being the prevailing way with which we operate as a country uh, and from the country level to a business and individual level. Now, what au- the Austrian school posits is, is that it puts more of an emphasis on free enterprise, it puts more of an emphasis on the individual and free market capitalism. And, you know, if you think about it from the form of incentives, incentives govern the world. They govern the world. They govern everything that we do. I wake up in the morning every single day. Um, because it is in my best interest to get up early so that I can get a head start of the day so that I can get more done in the day, right? That is my incentive structure for waking up in the morning. 
Um, I don't wake up in the morning because it's this biological function that as soon as my eyes open, I get up out of bed. It's not a given. It's an incentive for me to get up out of bed and do things. And everything we do, there's an underlying incentive structure to it. It's the way nature works. And so Austrian economics more taps into uh, the ideas of human nature and it leverages human greed for the betterment of society. Um, because naturally we humans, we want to make a better life for ourselves and our family. And the way that we do that is by allocating capital effectively. That does, just doesn't mean business machinery. It also means ourselves. We're human capital. Um, you know, human nature, these incentives, this natural greed that we have mean, uh, it, it drives us to, uh, to put ourselves in positions that will make, uh, the world that'll, uh, put ourselves in a better position and make, make, make a better lives for our family and the people around us. And with Austrian econ as the focus, it puts free enterprise at the center. It puts individuals at the center. Um, it's essentially emphasizing that individuals go out, they build a business, um, and they generate a positive real return on their investment in order to build a better life for themselves. And the only way that you can do that in an Austrian world where the government isn't at the center manipulating interest rates down is by pos- borrowing at a positive real interest rate only because you know the business you're going to pursue is going to be worthwhile and it's going to be a lasting business. You're not borrowing for the sake of borrowing because interest rates are so low. You're borrowing because you have a worthwhile project to pursue. That's the way money should work. That's the way credit should work. That's the way it used to work before we went off the gold standard. Since we went off the gold standard, we've detached money from physical reality. Now interest rates no longer represent a cost of capital. Um, They are now uh, essentially a mechanism by which we can force them lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until we hit zero, which we already have, to drive economic growth, which is really just this nonsensical spending. And so at its core, Austrian economics and and a society that would be uh, uh, prioritizing the individual and free market capitalism and free floating interest rates, interest rates that are not centrally manipulated, um, would be one that would be aligned with reality. And it would be one that would uh, allow for human flourishing because it leverages human greed, turns it into human productivity, right? Uh, But with uh, Keynesian economics, this whole uh, interest rate manipulation, focusing on spending above all else, um, you are leveraging human greed and turning it into human uh, gluttony. Uh, you are taking this, this, uh, these zero percent interest rates, and what's that allow? What that's allowing people to do is borrow for the sake of borrowing, and and do capital investment that is absolutely terrible and not productive. Um, whereas with uh, with Austrian economics, because interest rates are positive and real, um, then all capital investment is for the betterment of man, right? Because all capital investment, because it has a real cost associated to it, it is a good. Uh, investment of capital, right? So that's the fundamental difference between the two uh, between the two schools and the two outcomes that they bring about for uh, for the economy. Yeah, I mean that's a fantastic overview. It's really it's really crazy how we've seen this all play out, and we have these you know really obvious examples to point to. Um, but my question is, you know, how do we get here? Like, why did Keynesian economic thought like take off? Um, do you think it was just because from a government perspective? they have more control, like interventionalist economics just puts them in the driver's seat. Yes. So if you think about it this way, we have, we've guaranteed, we've guaranteed student loans uh, to basically everybody. People used to borrow, people used to borrow money to go to school um, because they knew that they were going in, they had a plan and the job that they were getting would allow them uh, could only be a could only be uh, secured by having a degree, and b it would allow them to pay off that debt, and they intended to do it. And we used to turn people down for student loans. Imagine that. But over the last several decades, 
we've been guaranteeing student loans. We've been guaranteeing and allowing everybody to go to school. And why is that? And why is it that at those schools we teach Keynesian economics? Well, it's pretty simple. Ultimately, it benefits the state. It benefits the state above all else. If you're taught from a very young age that growth just means spending, right, that growth just means spending, then it's in your best interest as a country to make it so that that's the only thing you're taught. Um, as a country, uh, at, the, at the federal level, um, if all they have to do is spend a whole bunch of money, um, and then that can be considered economic growth. That's tremendous. And so you will make sure that that is the only concept that gets taught in your schools. And you'll make sure that the schools that teach that will get federal funding and they'll get all the federal funding that they need. Um, and so essentially that's the big, that's the big scheme that's gone on, right? These schools, it's, it's the Cantillon effect. Um, the, these schools are extremely close to the money printer, to the people that have the ability, um, to create new money out of thin air in various different forms. Um, and, uh, and imbue it to financial institutions and, uh, and also the schools themselves. And so that's why particularly state schools, right. In private schools, um, you know, things may be taught differently, but particularly in state schools and, and your very large schools, your, your, basically every school that's, that's within a 50 mile radius of me, all the schools in Cambridge, um, that's exactly what you're taught. It benefits the state for people to believe that's the only type of economy that there can be that the only way is through centrally manipulated interest rates. There's no such thing as a cost of capital that's determined by the free market. That's a myth, right? Um, that's, that's, that's what they want to teach you, right? They want to teach you that uh, th there's no such thing as an interest rate that is set by the supply and demand for credit, right? That's a totally insane concept. The only way that interest rates can be set is by a central authority, right? Um, is by Dr. Ross standing behind the curtain um, and, and saying the interest rates are 5.5% now, right? Um, it used to be, and in a functioning, well-functioning economy, well-oiled machine, it would operate like a well-oiled machine. Interest rates would be higher if there was a, uh, a much uh, higher supply of credit and a, uh, uh, very, excuse me, um, interest rates would be much higher if there was a, this extreme demand for credit, right? Um, and that would lead people to be much more productive with what they were investing in. And interest rates would be much lower if there was this very low demand for credit to spur that on. But Instead of that being set by the free market and by the quality of borrowers and people's individual creditworthiness, right? It's set by a central entity, and what that does is uh, it allows less creditworthy bar. You know, if the government slams rates to zero, it allows less creditworthy borrowers who should be borrowing at a huge, extremely high interest rate to borrow at a relatively low spread, and uh, vice versa. It it enable you know when interest rates are extremely high, right, as they are now. Those creditworthy borrowers that should be able to borrow at an extremely narrow spread because they've proven their ability uh, to invest and invest well and productively, now they're they're gypped um, because uh, you know the, the government wants rates to be at a certain level for everybody, um, and that leads to uh, these extreme boom and bust cycles because it manipulates interest rates and it should. Um, but uh, that's essentially why Keynesianism is taught and it's taught so widely because at its core. Um, explicitly stated or not, and oftentimes it is included within lesson plans um, and it is in included within the curriculum, that uh, the government and, and the central bank, what we'll call it the government, uh, they have to be the ones to set interest rates, right? In order for economic growth to happen, in order for societies to grow, they have to be the ones to set interest rates. There's no other way. And that's why it's taught so widely in schools because it benefits the state. Yeah, I mean, it's just like crazy to look back and think how this is all like unfolded. Because if you just step back and have a logical frame of mind on this. And hey, speaking of, uh, sorry for uh, oh, sorry good. for interrupting you, but speaking of, my dad literally just texted me, holy shit, 
Megan's student loans are at 12%. Last year, they were at wow. 9%. So <laughs> what does that tell That's centrally manipulated interest rates, right? Ultimately, my little sister, she's going to school for neuroscience, biomedical engineering, right? Insane, right? She's going to get out and pay off those loans within two years. It's nuts. But now she has to pay 12% annually, right? And so the more creditworthy borrowers who are going to school for a worthwhile thing, they get gypped too when the government raises interest rates. And so it's this big mechanism. It's like trying to drive, it's like trying to drive a, uh, a small, uh, uh, tiny, like one of those toy cars for children as like a seven foot tall man. You are trying to, uh, you, you've got a hammer and a nail uh, and that's all you have. And you are trying to create Michelangelo's David with it. It's the wrong tools. And it's acting as if like uh, uh, you can use this one tool for everything and everybody. And it just doesn't work. But continue. Sorry. I, no, just got that text. No. It was, it was, I mean, it was that's like big. a prime example yeah. right there. Like, you know, for student loans, like it, it should be based off of your degree program and what's, you know, the average, you know, salary getting out of college and things like that, because it's really a, a wide spectrum. Yeah. I mean, you could be making a hundred K starting out or you'd be making like 40, 50 K with a liberal arts degree. And still, um, they don't care. And it just doesn't make any logical sense. Right. And, and, and that's kind of, where I see this lens of, of everything is you used to really have to have a sound business plan to get approved for something because, you know, it's uh, you, you need that proof of work to show them that this is worthwhile. It's worthwhile for the bank to, you know, put their reputation on the line to fund your ideas. Whereas now it's all, you know, it's just income, you know, credit score. Uh, and then really it, it doesn't, impact you getting approved it just impacts you getting whatever rate it is and it's even a small range in that regard um so you do have to play the the debt game and you know people like robert kiyosaki have talked about you know that for a while it's like you have to leverage debt or else you're just gonna fall behind and it's it's insane to think you know how we've we've gotten to this point but you talked about the boom and bust cycles as well being a result of this. And I think the other important, I guess, distinction as well and why we've gotten into this is because every time, right, that we've had a bust, you know, the government's just stepped in and made things better, but actually worse. Whereas, and you can correct me here and talk about maybe the Austrian school of thought is that when something does uh, go into a bust or a slowdown, that you should naturally let it play out because then the over leveraged or the less productive businesses, uh, spenders will be kind of washed out. That mindset will be corrected and you'll inherently become more efficient as like an economy, right? Is And it should take maybe less time or I don't know if that's true, but that's the Austrian like way of thinking, right? It is ultimately... What what the Austrian school talks about um, and what it posits ultimately is that there needs to be economic destruction. There needs to be real economic destruction and consequences for capital misallocation. And each cycle, what happens is inevitably when, you know, the, the Fed is, uh, whether it's a, a crisis that's spurred on by them or not, there is a uh, period of time where there is economic contraction. And rather than allowing that economic contraction to happen, which would make the U.S. less desirable on a world stage, 
what they do is they step in and they slam interest rates down. Uh, in the case of 2008, they slammed them down to zero or, or effectively zero, 0.25% for the very first time. Uh, and cycle after cycle, this is what they've chosen to do. Rather than having consequences for capital misallocation, which would teach people to, it would, it would allow people to learn from their mistakes, become more productive and allow us to be better off in the long run because we would learn from our mistakes. Uh, it is essentially not allowed that process of technological, uh, economic, and, and creative destruction to take place. And really, it's uh, it's like continually pushing a ball underwater each time it's trying to, to jump out of the water. Um, you know, rather than learning our lessons and, and going and getting put in timeout for a period of time and not having a great time as a nation, uh, but it's worth it because we come out with a lesson and we come out more productive and we come out with a lower likelihood that the same thing will happen again, what the Fed has chosen to do is is bring interest rates lower and do these big asset purchase programs from banks. Uh, now, at an individual level, this isn't good because it teaches us, uh, uh, it, it enables us to borrow extremely cheaply, be extremely greedy. Individuals that know how to leverage debt become more rich and individuals that don't become more poor. Um, at a corporate level, it does a very similar thing where businesses that shouldn't exist do exist and companies that haven't had positive revenue for their entire existence are allowed to exist for multiple decades purely because of low interest rates. And at a nationwide level, it just teaches us that we can spend in perpetuity with absolutely no consequences, right? That's what all of this does. Um, and so cycle after cycle has become the case. And each time the, the, the Federal Reserve eases or they lower interest rates and do these big asset purchases, um, then the, the inevitable uh, extreme bust occurs. Uh, uh, the, the inevitable uh, you know, extreme consequences that we will have to face at some point down the line, they grow and grow and grow. And because the bus becomes larger each time as capital continues to be misallocated, because it's never allowed to, uh, we're never allowed to be in an economic contraction, the Fed never allows that to happen, then the, the problems just get worse and worse and worse. And so therefore, the bus get worse. And what needs to happen is the Fed steps in with a bigger and bigger and bigger bailout package of sorts every single time. So these cycles, if you're looking at this like a wave that's going up and down around a line, this is the economy, this is expansion, this is contraction. If I'm starting out like this, expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, then the slowly the cycles get larger and they get bigger and bigger. And so we have this big boom. We have this, these, it used to be these, these economic expansion and contraction should look like this, right? It should be a slow and steady rise, slow and steady gains to productivity. Uh, hopefully the camera's facing the correct way so you can see that. Is this up and to the right? Yeah, yeah. This is up and to the right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is how, this is how economic growth should look, right? Uh, big straight line. And it should have minor ebbs and flows around economic growth, right? Little expansion, little contraction, little expansion, little contraction, microcycles. That's how it should work. But because the Fed has delayed the inevitable through this wide, huge, these huge easing packages every single time that doesn't allow banks to fail, doesn't allow individuals, consumers to fail. Um, now cycles look like this. It's this, this is what economic productivity, this is economic productivity. And now cycles look like this. It's huge boom, huge bust, huge boom. Huge, but and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So the amplitude of cycles is is rising, and that's because the Fed doesn't allow creative destruction. Because at the world level, it would threaten the United States uh, and our dominance uh, with the U.S. dollar if we allowed actual uh, creative destruction to take place. If we allowed economic contraction to happen, right, several years even of negative GDP 
uh, negative GDP growth or uh, GDP contraction, then we would be we would be boned as a nation because the game that everybody else is playing is just to bail out their economy and, and continue going. And so as long as this is the world's game, it's got to be the United States' game of just perpetual bailouts uh, to banks, to individuals, to financial institutions by slamming rates to zero and then starting anew. And it just pushes the problem down the road and widens out the amplitudes of these cycles. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the volatility is just increasing. It's, it's incredible and... Yeah, like you're saying, these it's getting worse. Like we see these just companies like I mean, I see it in the, you know, the fake food companies, right? Like the Oatly, the Beyond Meat. Like they're spending a hundred million dollars in marketing year. In a free market, Beyond Meat would be a, a, a in a real market. Not only in, in this fake market we have, they still are tanking. So like even and the only reason so many of these companies exist is because they're just zero interest rate, you know, companies that free money and then they're spending all of it on marketing and they're still doing a terrible job of, you know, well, they're doing, uh, they're not doing any job of making money because they're not, but they're doing a terrible job of, of convincing people because it's really a shit product. Yeah. They're, they're zero interest rate phenoms and it occurs at, and it occurs at an individual level too, right? You, you've never seen a higher concentration of social media gurus that are telling you how to get rich quick. All you need to do is go to your bank and take out a zero interest rate loan, go buy 12 Airbnbs, right? You've never seen that before, and you're only seeing that because cheap money exists, and cheap money only exists. Yeah, and someone's selling a guide on you know how to sell a, a guide so you can make money to to, to sell a guide. <laughs> That's literally it. I mean, it's several layers of nonsense and uh, several layers of nonsense, narcissism, and misallocated yeah, and it's, capital. It's almost like that's people have become numb to like spending as well. And I think that's also a byproduct of, of Keynesian economics that people don't talk about is they just don't value their money or really highly. They, they just spend it. Consumerism is through the roof. And, you know, they're just happy to spend their money on worthless crap that doesn't provide them any fulfillment or, or inherent value in their life um, just because they think that's what uh, you know, is the right thing to do. And as a matter of fact, yeah, increased spending is, is not, you know, leading to that higher value or that higher, um, whatever metric you're mentioning earlier, you know, happiness and, and, and fulfillment in life. It's, it's crazy how, if you just strip it back down to an individual level, it's like, oh, okay. If someone came up to you just peer to peer with a business plan that was like pretty bad, you probably wouldn't lend them money. So, you know, maybe you would, but then it might be, all right, you don't really seem like you have a good business plan or there, there needs to be more concrete evidence and things worked out. So right now, the best I could do is like 10, 15% interest because it just doesn't seem like a good plan. But if you come back, you know, with more concrete evidence, more work, then maybe I'd be okay doing five. And that's like, just think about it in general. If like someone came up to you and asked you to borrow $100,000, like, what would you say? You know, you'd be pretty apprehensive. But in reality, the banks don't work like that anymore. So yeah, it's just, it's just wild to me. And there's so many fiat company examples like this and it's crazy. But here we are. It's a good transition because what's happened? We had COVID, we had a crash, printed all this money. Um, and kind of suppressed any real response to COVID with a whole bunch of interventionalist policies. And now we've had this inflation, it was 9%. Now it's down to 3%. Maybe we can talk about if that's even accurate. Um, but now we've raised the rates quite a bit. Inflation's come down. 
and we're at this very unique spot. Um, so maybe why don't we start with CPI and inflation, or sorry, CPI and the raising of rates? Because ultimately, I want to get into you know what what do you think the Fed's going to do and soft landing and everything like that. But um, CPI and and the raising of rates. Does the raising of rates inherently actually fix inflation? And why is CPI kind of like a BS indicator anyway? Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, Bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Right. So, you know, the the Keynesian school, it's taught that, like, you you know, you have all these models. You have models where unemployment and uh, uh, inflation are, uh, are inversely correlated. You have these models where... Um, the level of interest is a, uh, uh, or the level of inflation is a byproduct of where interest rates are. It's all, it, it's all kind of presumptuous, but there's a little bit of truth to it. Um, you know, if it, boil it down to basics, right? Second, third, fourth, fifth order effects. When the Fed raises its policy interest rates, what that does is it drags up other front end interest rates across the economy out of necessity. Um, you know, if the Fed is offering 5% at its facilities, everybody else has to offer higher than 5%. Because if the Fed is the, uh, the risk-free lender, because it, it has the ability to create money, um, then uh, it's in your best interest to offer more interest. Um, and when the Fed raises its policy interest rates, it, it essentially influences all front-end rates up along with it. And so U.S. Treasury rates included. Those are the, that is the, uh, the biggest, most liquid uh, borrowing market in the world. Um, people own U.S. treasuries because where the hell else are you going to put all those U.S. dollars? You can't exclusively have loans. And so what do banks do? What do money market funds do? What do global companies and global banks do? They buy U.S. treasuries. Uh, the issue with raising rates is uh, is twofold. Um, well, well, I'll talk about the, the issue it has for the U.S. government. The, only da- the downside for the U.S. government is that Obviously, Treasury rates are being uh, – they increase as the Fed raises its interest rates. It, it, it drags up front-end rates, but it also makes it – in doing so, it makes it so that the Treasury has to issue bonds. It has to issue its bills, notes, and bonds all the way from one month to 30 years at a higher rate because the, because the on-the-run uh, U.S. Treasuries are trading higher. Uh, off-the-run U.S. Treasuries are trading at a higher yield, right? And so you have to issue at a higher coupon. And that makes it more expensive for the U.S. government to actually fund that. Uh, and if you don't have any, if you have weak tax receipts like we do now, how do you fund that, those interest payments? You fund it with more debt issuance. So it's this big, big cycle. And that's what we're in right now. But at an individual level, does raising rates bring inflation down? Like I said, it's like, um, you know, the Fed only has a hammer. The Fed is basically trying to uh, influence people at an individual level to spend less money. And all it has is a hammer. That's it. It has a very, very blunt object. And now it has uh, another tool, which is uh, big asset purchases, QE. By buying a lot of U.S. treasuries from banks, it does help to influence. Well, you know, there's argument about this, but I will keep it extremely simple. QE, in a way, it does bring down interest rates because if you buy a shit ton of U.S. treasuries, it's going to influence rates on off-the-run securities down, right? If the U.S. treasury market is $20 billion and I'm the Fed and I buy $10 billion of U.S. treasuries, 
rate, the yield on that is going to go down because the price goes up, right? So the yield goes down uh, on that. And so it's, it's kind of inarguable in my mind, at least that QE brings rates down. So it has two tools to influence interest rates, um, big asset purchases and setting its policy rate. But both of those have long and variable lags, really long and variable lags. It takes a while from when the Fed hikes its interest rates to when that actually leads to tighter lending standards for businesses and consumers. We're starting to see that now. It, it has like a 12 to 18 month lag effect. And we are, of course, 15 months into when the Fed first hiked its policy rate. And so if you think about it, really, what we're starting to feel right now with consumers taking on less credit for the first time in 28 months is the first rate hike in March of 2020. And the Fed has hiked an additional 500 basis points since then, right? Now we, we, and so if all we're feeling is the Fed's very first rate hike and they have, high, which was 25 basis points and they have hiked in aggregate uh, 500 basis points more, then um, in all likelihood, we are in for some shit, pardon my French, over the next several months. Uh, if the reality is that credit is already starting to slow, right, which is the velocity of money, which ultimately because Keynesian models are the way that they are, and we live in a credit-based economy, uh, and, and uh, uh, a central authority manipulates interest rates, then as credit goes, so too does economic growth. Um, if we live in a credit-based economy, um, and, and the economy is so incumbent, it's so, not incumbent, not the word, it's so reliant on these very low interest rates. Now rates are being jacked up at their highest rate in several decades. Um, and there are some disconcerting leading indicators that point to we're probably headed for uh, some kind of uh, some kind of pretty bad recession uh, headed up, um, and and the risks are no longer towards inflation but deflation. In a in a way, rate hikes impact inflation. Rate hikes impact price inflation. Um, it all also has to boil down to inflation expectations. Think about it this way. It's it's kind of strange, but uh, I suppose it kind of makes sense because it's all about the individual and and what individuals think. If people think prices are going to go up, and this is what the Fed's argument has, and there's some validity to it. If people think prices are going to go up, then they will go out and they will make sure that they spend now, right? So if inflation expectations, in other words, are high, people will go out and spend, which will raise prices even more. But if people think prices are going to go down, then they hold off. They don't spend as much. And so a lot of what has brought inflation down this cycle has been about inflation expectations. Usually, like we, we have market cycles, but we also have uh, uh, sort of shared societal uh, perception cycles. If we think prices are not going to go up forever, we think they're going to go down, then we're not going to buy as much stuff. And so with the Fed hiking rates, it has this extremely lagged pass-through, extremely lagged pass-through. But if by the Fed hiking rates, people think, oh, this means prices are going to go down, so they stop spending as much then prices will go down. So it's this, it's this very interesting thing. But at the end of the day, um, price inflation is caused by people buying things, right? That, that, uh, you know, and why do people buy things? Because new money is injected into the economy, fiscally and monetarily, um, directly to people or directly to businesses, right? Um, and both through the perception that prices are going to go down and the reality of money being more expensive, prices eventually do come down. It also helps that inflation is a rate of change, right? So if prices stay where they are and don't change, um, then eventually inflation will come back down to zero percent. The unfortunate thing is that when we when we think inflation, unfortunately, our lexicon is so twisted, and pe- most people are like really financially illiterate. So when they think inflation, they think prices. And when we say inflation has come back down, most people will think, "Oh, prices have come back down," but that's not the case, right? Prices have doubled over the last two years. Okay, inflation has come back down to its long run average. It's almost back at two percent. That doesn't mean prices have come down. It means the rate of change of prices have come down. But again, the 95th percentile of people will be lost in that explanation. 
But all that you need to know is that prices aren't coming down. And the reason that prices aren't coming down is because the the Fed, as I said earlier, they will not allow for economic contraction. They can't allow prices to go down because then that means people wouldn't spend. So that's why they hate deflation more than they hate inflation. And that's why they target a long run average of 2% inflation. They want prices to keep going up, right? Not because it better it it's better for the people, but it's better for economic growth. It's better for the banks that write the loans, right? And it's better for the US, it's better for the United States and the global stage. And so the Fed ultimately isn't working for you, right? The Fed isn't incompetent. There's this big uh, you know, there's this wide swath of people, including a lot of big corners that think the Fed is incompetent with printing money. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. The Fed isn't incompetent. They just don't work for you, right? I read that on Twitter and I couldn't agree with it more. They work for the banks who write these loans. Uh, so they, in- they incentivize this economic growth by allowing 2%, targeting 2% inflation. They want things to get more expensive, not because it betters the citizens, but because it better it increases spending. Prices are going to go up. People consume. When people consume, banks write more loans. They, they extend more credit, businesses and individuals. Um, and so, yeah, very long-winded answer. But yes, rate hikes do, in a way, not not as directly as people may think, uh, impact prices. No, it's a great explanation. And going back to the inflation piece, I think it's uh, it's so true. Even Biden, my favorite part was when Biden was like, it's just up a smidge. Uh, Joe, it's it's uh, it's a rate of change. It's still 8 point whatever percent, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, Bidenomics, baby. Bidenomics. That's what you call consumer sentiment at record like the, lows. These pr- prices aren't coming down, people. You know, the that's not going to happen. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, strap up. But what, what's really fascinating to me is, you know, I, I knew there was a lag, but you're saying it's like 12 to 15 months or 18 months, um, which is insane because, you know, you hear all this about a soft landing and all this nonsense. It's like, well, that's pretty much impossible to do then if there's such you know a large lag and we're just starting to feel things from the first few rate hikes now because like you're saying, we've got a 20x to go in terms of what we've already done um, in, in, in rate hike basis points. So how it's not even really a realm of the possibility. And then of course, what you know? What is the Fed just going to do? So, say in in six months, everything's down forty percent. They're just going to have to drop them anyway, right? Yeah. So the this idea of a soft landing, it happened. It's trotted out before every single uh, economic recession. Whenever the Fed is done with what it said it was going to do, i.e., we reach the end of a Fed rate hiking cycle. All the headlines are about soft landing, and essentially, what that means is that, like, this is an this is just an analogy to analogize the economy to a plane. Um, and if economic growth is running super hot, and therefore inflation is running super hot, then the idea is that you want to bring the plane back down to land on the runway. And there are two ways you can do that: you could have a a hard landing, or you crash, um, or you could have a soft landing. You come in nice and smooth, you know, no problems. But the idea of a soft landing is extremely stupid. Think about it this way. I did, gave that whole analogy about the economy moving in cycles like this. All of this is a continuous change, right? If it was a discrete change, which means it just goes from one state to another, it would go expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, little dots. But that's not the way the world works. That's not the way the world works, the economy works. It's not the way that time works, right? Um, it's all continuous. It's all always happening. It's never expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. It's always a process. So this idea of a soft landing is that 
uh, it's just totally ignoring market cycles. We went from this extreme credit binge from 2020 to 2022. We're still going through it. We're, we're in the end phases of it, but we're still going through it. This extreme credit binge, unseen in the entire history of the United States. Huge, biggest credit binge we've ever had at an individual business and nation, and nation level. And now we're going through the fastest Fed tightening cycle in aggregate and the pace of hikes since forever. This is the fastest they've ever done it, right? We've obviously had fast uh, rate hikes. We've never had um, several several consecutive 75 basis point rate hikes. Never before. We've had a few. And in the 80s, we had uh, a few months where we had several hundred basis point rate hikes and they came straight back down. But that was a different time. In modern times, so think about it this way. If you just take it to his logical conclusion, market cycles are continuous. They're not discrete. They don't go from one to zero. They're going from expansion to contraction. So if we came off this huge expansion, and now all of a sudden, all the jet fuel has been taken out from the economy with pot, with going from 0% interest rates to 5.25, 5.5, right? All the jet fuel has been taken out. How on planet Earth do we land on the runway without crashing? How does that happen? Particularly given market cycles. It's just uh, these soft landing headlines. It's it's not anything to take too seriously at the end of the day. Whenever the Fed approaches its peak rate hiking cycle, and you can go back through time, Michael Cantro created a uh, an indicator on the Bloomberg terminal for this, the amount of times that the word the phrase soft landing has appeared in headlines. I can't find it anywhere. I wish I could. But this is this cycle is the most that the word soft landing has appeared in news headlines ever. Uh, and he he made this metric. And so this is true. The most often that the word soft landing has appeared in the headlines ever. But this always just appears when the Fed is approaching its the peak of its rate hiking cycle and the economy hasn't unwound yet. But like I just said, long and variable lags. The Fed approaches the peak of its rate hiking cycle. It gets there and it can stay there for a little while. And then they start to kick in. Then credit slows down. Then bank lending slows down. Then the spreads at which businesses have to borrow goes up. And then they can't afford to borrow, so they have to downsize. They sell assets, they go, uh, or they fire people, or if things get really bad, they default. And then lenders, they take a hit. Sometimes lenders go bankrupt. They extend less credit. And it's this vicious, vicious cycle. It doesn't happen until a year or more after the Fed starts hiking interest rates. And so we haven't seen that yet. But that you always see these headlines. Basically, in so many words, you always see these headlines in the transient period between when we approach peak rate hikes, peak tightness, and the economy hasn't unwound yet. That's the period we find ourselves in right now. This little Goldilocks period, right? Where the cost of capital is high, but it actually hasn't hit the real economy yet. But make no mistake, right? Cycles are a thing. Cycles aren't, cycles haven't disappeared, right? Time hasn't stopped flowing. The world is still round and, and cycles always have a downturn. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people do believe it, but I don't, I don't know. It's uh, it's hilarious to me. Um, but what I'm curious is, I think right now, and you know this for sure, is like, you know, Powell and what people are predicting the Fed, like a year from now, rates will be what, like high threes or low fours, like, so they'll be down like a little bit. But like, in reality, if, you know, shit hits the fan, like, it probably will. You know, don't you think that they, they would just bring them back down to pretty much zero or, or, or lower than what's forecasted currently? So the reason the Fed is hiking so much right now, a school of thought, Randy Woodward, a friend of mine from Twitter and uh, several decades in the bond market, extremely bright gentleman. You should, everyone listening to this should go follow him on Twitter at the bond freak. 
The reason he says that the Fed is hiking so much right now is so that they have room to cut and they have room to cut, not back down to zero. And that makes sense. Think about it this way. Powell is trying to restore his credibility and restore the Fed's credibility. He doesn't want to be known as the guy who in 2019 uh, stopped hiking rates and restarted QE because the repo market had a one-day cash shortage, right? The Powell pivot has now entered the FinTwit and economic lexicon the world over, and he doesn't want to be remembered for that. He doesn't want to be remembered for the softy Fed chairman, right? particularly entering his 80s. He doesn't want to live his life and die as the soft Fed chairman. He wants to be known as the guy who brought inflation back down to target and was extremely stringent and, and stuck to his word. So he's trying to restore his credibility and he's trying to restore the Fed's credibility as an institution. If we just think, oh, the Fed will never allow a recession to happen, the, the, the Fed is a joke of an institution, it's a sham of an institution, then all of a sudden, this interest rate targeting no longer works. Its game no longer works. It can no longer influence what it wants to influence in the market because that's largely what it does. It doesn't set things. It attempts to influence them. Um, and if it loses its credibility, it, it loses its ability to do that at the margin. So what, what Powell's trying to do is never go back to zero interest rates and never go back to QE. Now, I tend to that's think good, that those right? yeah, are... That's good, right? Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think that's good. But I also think that's a total pipe dream, um, right? I th- you know, if we can return to austerity, that's, that's fucking awesome. Pardon my French. That means Bitcoin has less utility than it did yesterday, right? But I don't think we can do that. If you look at the Bank of Japan, for example, the Bank of Japan uh, dropped its own version of QE, yield curve control, and then less than 12 trading hours later, it couldn't even survive a weekend, uh, it reinstituted an emergency bond buying facility. Japan is the worst case. Japan is the worst out of all of it. They're the worst case scenario about uh, being a part of their own government bond market. But if you extrapolate that out to all other nations, which I think is applicable over the next many decades, I don't think we can ever exit our government bond market. I think we're a perpetual player there. And I think we're also a perpetual player in keeping interest rates artificially low. I think this is a game that we can't drop. Um, Being austere just isn't in the cards at a nation level, at a consumer level, or at a business level. I think we have passed the point of no return for that. So I think these tools and the abandonment of them that Powell is seeking, I think that's not going to last for a very long time. And I think that we're going to return to the era of uh, quantitative easing soon enough. ZERP, zero interest rates? I don't know. I think we can survive for for years, maybe maybe a decade or two, uh, keeping rates at a positive level. At a positive real level? Maybe not. But as a po- at a positive nominal level? Uh, potentially. Right? I think inflation is going to have to run hot over interest rates in order for the government's debt burden to be alleviated. I just don't think we're going to be able to pay it down. Um, I don't think austerity is the answer. I think Powell wants austerity to be the answer. I think he, wants, he, he does want to abandon QE. He does want to abandon ZERP. He has said that. But uh, I just don't think it's going to be possible. And so uh, the, the reason the Fed is hiking now, right, even though they're going to have to uh, probably cut interest rates later, is because they are hiking now because they'll have to cut later, right? They're not stopping now. While the going is good and the economy hasn't unwound, they're going to get those little incremental hikes in. So that by the time they have to cut, they don't have to cut all the way back down to zero. Yeah, to me, like when, when I hear him talk about the landing or whatever, that's what I understand is like, he thinks or he wants to like, you know, keep interest rates positive and, and not go back to QE. But I, I, yeah, I just don't think that's realistic, especially because when stuff does go bad, the pressure put on politicians and everything is just like, you know, at, at that point, you've already dug your, your hole in your grave and, you know, everyone's just going to call for, you know, just do something right. And, uh, that inherently always leads, you know, to the problem. And, and that's what happened during COVID too. I think everyone was, 
so afraid and there's so much backlash. It's like, oh, you got to do something. And, you know, that was Trump's downside as well. Right. Um, so it's it's fascinating, the psychology of, of how that happens. But, you know, it's not going to get better because it's already ha- it already has so much momentum right in in this regard though is there any way to really like fix the system at this point do you think yeah it would be a ret- it would be a return to austerity right um and it all starts with the government level right cutting 50 percent of government jobs or more um reducing the size of our standing army um those would be a start right and people think that oh that would threaten us at a global level no it wouldn't Right. We have the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries, the most deep and liquid global capital market ever. People think that we enforce our will and the dollar. What is the dollar backed by? It's backed by our military. No, our dollar, the dollar is backed by the dollar. Right. We lucked out in Bretton Woods. The entire global economy over the last several decades has been built on top of U.S. dollar rails. It's entrenched. It's not going anywhere, at least for several decades. And it's definitely not being replaced by another fiat currency. Right. You can't unplug it like a video game cartridge and plug it back in. That's what backs the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar backs the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and the widespread use, right? Like the entrenchment. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, precisely the entrenchment. And so what I would do, uh, what I would do to get fix this system is a return to austerity. First at the fiscal level, more than half of the government jobs that we have, we don't need. Don't need them. Get rid of them. Okay. Um, I would, uh, I would also introduce uh, age limits to Congress. I would introduce age limits to basically all public office. Okay. If you are over 60 years old, which seems pretty young to some people, um, I think 65, the age that most people retire, I think should be the age that government officials are no longer allowed to be in office. And that's, uh, you know, uh, obviously, well, what if we have a, a nice old wise president? Um, ultimately, we need people uh, in Congress. Uh, we need people at the highest, in the highest halls of power uh, who are actual people and not people suffering um, from, uh, you know, uh, uh, who are slowly withering away and dying. We need young people up there. Um, that, that's the first thing that I do. Uh, the first two things that I do, right? A return to austerity, slashing 50% of fiscal spending, cutting 50, 60, 70% of government employees, and then introducing age limits. And I think you, you'd fix 60% of the problems that we face as a nation, um, and particularly with the money, over the next many decades with those two decisions alone. I think it's just rather because Just because done, cutting like, spending will then allow us to alleviate a debt burden, or, or what? why would that be so um, impactful? Yes. Yes, because we wouldn't be we wouldn't need to spend as much, so we wouldn't need to borrow nearly as much, and so the problem of this interest burden wouldn't be as high, right? Um, we would fix the interest burden problem by by not spending so goddamn much, so we wouldn't need to to issue debt, which would have more interest that we need to pay off by issuing more debt, and as tax revenues get more and more and more and more expensive, as people earn less, it just becomes a bigger issue. That's what I would do, right? I would cut I would cut government spending by uh, an extreme degree. Um, I would also uh, I would also make it so that laws around commerce were less bloated and people got taxed far less uh, for their businesses. Um, if we want, as a country, if we want actual economic growth, then we should be incentivizing creation of businesses, not creating new and unique ways to tax people. Um, you can't, you know, uh, lift yourself up by standing in a bucket. I don't remember who said that, but ultimately, you can't tax a nation into uh, wealth, right? What you can do is you can create an environment within which businesses can thrive and then real growth can happen. And so that's what I would do, right? Ultimately, I would make wholesale changes to the way that we operate as a country and the way that we incentivize business creation and our tax structure. And that's not just the businessman and the serial entrepreneur and me saying, I don't want to pay as many taxes. I certainly 
don't want to pay as much in taxes. But from a purely objective standpoint, I think that that's the way you do it. That's the way you save uh, your country and that's the way you save your currency. And then you're incentivizing, you know, creating real value for society instead of just, you know, propping it up with consumerism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bringing, bringing, bringing economic growth back into alignment with reality. They've been attached and the, uh, the gap between the two has been increasing for far too long. Yeah. What will people do if they get laid off? 50% of the government workers start a business. They'll have to learn to code. They'll have to learn to do something productive. Yeah, I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought you would laugh at that. That was a joke about all the... T- Remember when they told all the truckers oh, yeah, to go learn to yeah, code after yeah. they said... They were yeah, yeah, they should learn to code. No, but, you know, in all seriousness, right, if we had an environment where uh, we had several thousand, if not million, several hundred thousand, if not million uh, small businesses, and, and we, we were a nation that wasn't as reliant on uh, international commerce, and of course, we will always be. We are globally interconnected. There's never going to change. But if we had uh, individuals who uh, relied on themselves and relied on the small businesses that they owned, we wouldn't need this massive conglomerate, this massive octopus in order to fund everybody's occupation. If we keep heading in the direction that we will, the majority of jobs, and they already are, will be government jobs. That shouldn't be the case. 50% of U.S. GDP shouldn't be from government jobs. That shouldn't be the case. It should be from people going and working for other corporations, large and small, and building their own businesses. That's how you grow as a nation. Uh, and that's all. That's also how you make it so we don't you know, slip into this uh, silly totalitarian state uh, where everybody's old and geriatric and fat and dysgenic and eating bugs all the time. Yeah, and there's just more redundancy across the chain, right? Like you just have more, more options, uh, more security from the supply chain perspective. So yeah, that, I mean, it makes total sense to me, but... In reality, I don't think any of that's going to happen. Um, I, I'm optimistic that maybe it, it's not as bad, and I don't know. But I guess that's why we have, and that's why there's Bitcoin. It allows right. you it allows you to position position yourself adjacent to that tomfoolery at an individual and business level. Um, if you can't leave the system, if you can't exit it, there's an asset you can allocate to that can shield you from the harm. Yeah, and that's what I was about to say. Is like talking about Bitcoin. Um, how do you see kind of that playing out, especially, I guess, in the short term? You know, if, if everything it's really interesting for me, because right now I think, you know, a recession's clear. You can talk about the covid crash, but we really Bitcoin hasn't really gone through a full blown recession um, in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. since it's existed. And um, we've been in this you know what, 13 year bull market minus covid crash and that got suppressed anyway. And yeah, I'm curious to see, you know, what, what you think about that, because the other thing I, I'm curious is, and it depends on QE and everything, is just like how long this is going to play out, right? Because you, you have just the, the metric of government intervention dictating kind of how long a recession would, you know, go on for. But obviously, we have the having next spring, the fundamentals of the scarcity of Bitcoin are, are not changing or, or they are changing, I guess, from the having perspective, but the, that's known and uh, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting timing, uncanny, actually. So, but I know everyone's still very bullish, of course, uh, based on just everything in the macro world. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, by the time the next having rolls around, I don't think that Bitcoin will be near a new all-time high or its previous all-time high. 
you know, if we think about it this way, like we've never entered a Bitcoin has ever been exactly like you said, well, excuse me, in a real prolonged recession. We had that micro recession in uh, 2020 that was met on the other end with colossal fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've never seen before. We've never seen like a prolonged actual painful recession for Bitcoin. And being the most high beta risk asset out there, right, being the most sensitive to risk taking in the overall economy, and you have this huge decline in risk taking as a result of the recession and risk assets sell off hugely and they're in an actual prolonged bear market, Bitcoin stands to hurt more than most. Uh, so, so, yeah, I don't over the, you know, over the next 12 months, I'm not particularly bullish on Bitcoin, right, um, if I were to phrase it that way. Purely because of the macro backdrop, right? We're, we're seeing monetary destruction at a level that we've never seen since the 1930s, since 1933, um, from a money supply perspective. And if Bitcoin is the world's most porous sponge for liquidity, and liquidity is getting decimated and probably will stand to into the, the early stages of a recession that's hopefully not too long, um, then uh, it doesn't have a lot of liquidity to soak up, right? So uh, I'm not particularly bullish on Bitcoin, even uh, heading into its supply schedule being cut in half. Um, that of course is a huge bullish catalyst and ceteris paribus, it will cause the price to appreciate significantly. Uh, but you also got to factor in the amount of people that are going to be selling, uh, into that event and, uh, following that event, uh, in order to capitalize on, uh, those higher prices, particularly as we head into this risk off period. So, um, you know, even though the halving is a, uh, from a supply schedule perspective, ceteris paribus, if demand were to stay completely constant, then of course price would skyrocket, but I don't think demand is constant. Uh, I, I don't think demand will be constant through that period heading into the recession that we're going to be entering. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I started to see some, you know, the 100K meme calls coming out on Twitter. And I'm just like, oof, like, guys, I don't know about this. You know, we're, we're at the cusp of, yeah, potentially the worst, you know, uh, recession in quite some time and just uncertainty across the board. Like, it's, it's, I feel like it's never been more obvious that there, for sure, things are slowing down, right? Um, you know, in 08. But it's difficult. It's, it's difficult to make those calls when the masses aren't saying them. A lot of people will consider themselves like uh, an independent thinker yeah. of some kind. But then when all of the stars are aligning for a very, very large deflationary bust and recession to ensue, but nobody else is saying it, it's difficult for a lot of people to make those and calls. And it's like you just look at like the NASDAQ just like ripping all new, new highs the past month. And like... How is that even possible? Like, and it, I know it's driven by just like a handful of companies, and 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 still, it's just yeah. Logically, to me, I I think it makes a lot of sense. And you're looking at like way more data, of course, than most people. And it's it's really interesting when you take all these data points: the labor market, discretional spending, um, a lot of leading indicators, and on top of just the logical fact that we've you know hiked rates so high and we're just starting to feel them now. And you know, the real estate market, I keep a decent tap on and, and you see examples like what Austin, right? You talk a lot about the, you know, Airbnbs. A lot, I know a lot of people in Austin just like it's down 30, 40% because everyone's Airbnbs are, are gone. They get called back to the office, which is really just a, a friendlier way to lay them off. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting, but it doesn't, mean that we don't have to you know we have to cancel being bullish on bitcoin for like 12 months out or 24 months out i think it just might be a little sideways or not as bullish as, as people think in the next in the short term yeah. yeah you can't fight the market you can't fight the market you know you gotta i love narratives as much as the next guy but we need to be realistic we know what bitcoin the asset is and we know how it trades and behaves 
And so we got to objectively recognize the, uh, the macro environment we find ourselves in. Um, I would love the narrative to be that, you uh, know, the, the Fed won't allow a recession to happen and it'll, uh, it'll allow the good times to keep going and it'll cut rates imminently to zero before a recession begins and, and start pumping liquidity into banks with uh, asset purchases and we'll be fine and dandy and headed to 100K by the next halving. I would love that to be the, the case, but um, it isn't. Uh, and how Bitcoin trades and the asset that it is, we got to be realistic. So here's the, here's the next question that ties into that is, is that what we want? Like, so inherently we're talking about Powell's mindset actually being relatively decent. You know, it's a good thing what he's trying to do. It may not work out, like he's saying, um, but it's probably good for the economy, for the individual. But then Bitcoiners, you know, kind of want to see this hyper Bitcoinization. They want to see the system blow up so that we can start a new that that might be a very chaotic world so you know what do you think you know is kind of the best way for progress to really happen do you think you know quick you know quick and painful get it over with or hopefully we have a longer transition to a more you know bitcoin standard yeah it won't it won't be uh, you know the people who are calling for so called Hyper Bitcoinization, which I don't have a problem with anybody. I just have, I just take issue with the idea. Um, you don't want to live in that world, just exactly like you said. Um, you know, in the world that Bitcoin heads to a million dollars tomorrow, um, you know, there would be riots uh, across every street in America. Um, there would be extreme pandemonium, chaos, buildings collapsing. It'd be terrible. You wouldn't even, you know, it's it's difficult for the human mind to envision what kind of awful situation we'd have to be in as a country for that to be the case. You don't want that. You don't want, ex- you don't want imminent collapse of your global monetary order, right? That's not a, you know, so your favorite asset can go to a million dollars. Okay, good. Well, now you have, yeah, what nothing, are you gonna buy? right? That your global monetary order has collapsed. What are you going to buy with your Bitcoin? Right. Uh, it's going to be a, a more slow multi-decade transition towards austerity at the individual level. People are going to allocate to these assets because they understand that it's either I borrow cheaply and invest in slightly less cheap things to earn a carry, earn a positive carry and hopefully survive, or benefit in an outsized fashion by just allocating to an asset that appreciates as this, this, uh, these cycles keep going. And uh, it's going to be that, right? It's going to be people allocating, businesses allocating, nations allocating um, away from uh, this, uh, th- these currencies who are incumbent on perpetual uh, credit expansion and towards this hard money that, you know, who has a fixed su- su- supply schedule in perpetuity. Um, and also, of course, other hard assets, gold, silver, whatever. Um, and it's going ha- to happen over several decades, right? These cycles are inevitable. Um, these, these expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, and unless the Fed can get back on this horse, it's just going to get, the amplitude is just going to continue widening out. It's going to get more severe each time. And so, if that is the case, and I believe it will continue to be the case over several decades, and I believe the way that mass adoption occurs is just by people naturally allocating to it over the course of several decades. I don't, I don't expect a, you know, a rate of change like all, all of a sudden the rate of change flattens out into 2022 and then, oh my goodness, because that would involve the global monetary order completely collapsing, right? Um, I believe and I continue to believe that it will just be a slow and steady realization at an individual level. Uh, like myself has, I know that I am not a unique individual in this world. I know that there are thousands, millions just like me who are realizing what is happening every single day and making the choice to allocate to money that isn't their home currency. I'm not unique. And if this is a uh, paradigm shift for the world, which I believe that it is, then it's just going to continue over several decades. People are going to allocate to it 
at an individual level to hedge themselves away from the system that's just going to keep doing this, right? Going to continue. These cycles are going to continue widening unless austerity comes into the mix, right? If fiscal austerity comes into the mix, we can do that sustainably. It'll be a different scenario, but I don't believe that'll be the case. So I think the the path of least resistance and the path of highest likelihood will just be slow and steady adoption over several decades as people seek a way out. Yeah. And I think people just underestimate how long it takes for things like this to play. Like, you know, Bitcoiners, we champion being low time preference. Well, I think you really need to dig into that because it's yeah, it's really selfish and hip, hypocritical to say that you're low time preference and then also say that Bitcoin is going to be one of the most widely used reserve currencies in our lifetime. Right. It's kind of main character ish of, of any of us to say that that's going to happen in such a short time frame. If we are saying, oh, we're low time. Preference. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. And, and again, I think it's it's true. We we want it to be slow. We want more people to kind of realize the principles that they need to live their life by are, you know, important and get back to a more sovereign. We're contributing real value to the society and, and allocating cash to things with actually inherent value and not just consumerism. And yeah, there's there's more. There's just a momentum. I feel this momentum in this space. In the health space, I mean, even the presidential nominees are better around. You know, we got more options. We got people talking about Bitcoin, we got people talking about, you know, vaccine injuries and EMFs. So I'm like, oh, this is like a, a breath of fresh air. And, you know, I don't agree with everything that any politician says. But the fact that a lot of these things are being brought up to the public discourse is good. And it makes me think that more people are becoming aware of the inherent issues with our centralized systems that exist today. So um, I hope there's a small shift in the society um, mindset because it has gotten pretty bad um, and believe what you want from what, you know, you see on the media, but it's uh, it's time for maybe a, a swing in the other direction. And uh, I'm really, I, to me, it's exciting, right? I don't know. You know, these kind of events don't happen. You know, it happened in 08, 09. I was like 12 and it happened in dot-com bubble. I was like, you know, four. So it's kind of exciting to like think about what's going on right now and being a part of it, being adult with, you know, some money. Because, yeah, if you uh, play your cards right, you can actually position yourself very well for, uh, um, you know, the future when a recession happens. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. And I think the next 12 to 18 months are probably going to be some of the most important, you know, uh, months in our, in our lives, me and you for a similar, similar age. Right. So it's, uh, it's exciting to me, but it's also exciting when you have this knowledge and, you know, have this, um, influence and understanding of Bitcoin and more decentralized solutions that, that exist. Because for me, it's, yeah, I'm not worried if the grocery store shelves are empty. I got like, you know, freezers full of meat for, for a good amount of time. <laughs> That's right. That's the best way to position yourself. Couldn't agree so more. how else do you embody decentralization? You know, just wrapping up here, kind of, you got into health, you're into health and fitness, obviously, was that kind of first or did that come after the fact that you realized this whole mindset shift? Um, kind of just last yeah. few questions here. I'm curious and I, I, I want to touch upon it because there's yeah. a lot of Bitcoiners who they just, they just Bitcoin and it's growing this health fitness movement in the Bitcoin space. And I'm, I'm excited, but I want to drive it forward even more. 
Yeah. So I was, um, I was into health and fitness well before I was into Bitcoin, which I also think, I also think, uh, put me onto the idea. It warmed me up to the idea more because the inherent habits and the attributes that I, uh, that I learned through, uh, through maintaining extreme discipline with, uh, with health and fitness were the exact same, uh, attributes that made Bitcoin so attractive as a money and made Austrian economics so attractive as a principle of thought. Um, I started bodybuilding when I was, uh, I did my first show in my senior year of high school. I was 17. Um, and, uh, I hope to do one again very soon. Uh, obviously it's going to be months long prep, but the, the, you know, it's, it's always been a part of my life. I played soccer at a very high level, um, through, uh, elementary school. And then all the way through middle and high school, I played for one of the best uh, club teams in new England. I, you know, I was, I played on these great teams. I wasn't the best on the team, but I played on these great teams. Um, and, uh, I, I learned about it at a very young age. I was one of the, I was one of the bigger, more heftier players. Um, and so I started taking up individual sport in the form of uh, weightlifting, um, and so bodybuilding and aesthetics and natural beauty has always been something that's, uh, increasingly been important to me, but, uh, I started doing this in, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade. So ages ago now, um, six, seven, eight years ago, been doing this for quite some time and it's been a very inherent part of my life. It's, it's of course my Twitter banner is me doing a, um, doing a, well, I, I wasn't doing a vacuum at the time I was posing to get ready to do a vacuum, but my dad took a, I think he was in the audience and he took a photo before I did the vacuum, but it's obviously me up on stage doing a vacuum. And, um, I value that basically as much as I do with uh, markets. I just don't, apart from that banner profile photo, I don't, I'm not very public about all of it. Um, but it is the other, it is the other side of what I do, right. You know, in terms of a hobby and in terms of, um, uh, what I do apart from markets. So it's kind of, it's kind of uh, very eclectic and strange. Um, you know, staring at a staring at charts and synthesizing data, and then writing about these really complex market topics simply, and then going and lifting heavy ass, you know, iron plates above your head and above your chest and lifting them off the ground. Um, but uh, I think everybody needs to do it. They should do it. Ultimately, uh, health and fitness, you know, particularly now, the way that social media has evolved, and, and what I'm seeing, younger generations, younger than me, do. I'm very happy to be born when I was and have the the great friend group that I had throughout high school. Because um, nowadays, right, social media used to be, let's talk like MySpace, it used to be you had to search up someone's name, find their profile, and then ask to be a friend, and then they accept you as a friend. And then Facebook introduced the timeline. And now you can scroll, uh, and it had pictures and images. Um, And then Twitter came along, and it reduced the amount of characters that you could have with pictures and images, but you could still scroll. And then Instagram came along, it removed, it made the images the main focal point and it reduced the amount of text that was visible on the screen. So now when you're scrolling, it it went from having to search up a friend, following them, and then using it as like a communication platform or basically like a perpetual high school yearbook. That's what social media used to be. It used to be social, used to be an online high school yearbook. And it morphed into with Instagram, the image takes up the entirety of your phone screen and you stare at it this close to your face with extreme blue light all day long. It disrupts your sleep. It destroys your prefrontal cortex. It fries your dopamine receptors because your reward system, rather than uh, going out and earning it, right, like you do at the gym, like you you lift heavy ass stuff, you you earn it, and you have that rush of adrenaline and dopamine that you've earned, or by doing something difficult that you don't want to do. Uh, now dopamine can be earned just by staring at your phone a few inches away from your face. And TikTok has made it even worse. It take it took what Instagram did, which was make images the focal point, and now it, it has subsumed the entire screen. So now it's not just a section of the screen with an image; it's the whole screen. And so we've evolved from having to search for a friend and having an online yearbook, basically for adults, 
to the entirety of the screen filled up with a big image that's super dynamic and people no longer have attention spans. They've lost their attention spans. They've lost their internal dialogue. They've fried their prefrontal cortexes, so they don't have any critical thought anymore. And they have uh, completely destroyed their reward centers and their dopamine centers. And so now people are uh, extremely inadequate. Um, you know, uh, on a daily basis, their accomplishments may consist of brushing their teeth and opening the blinds. And that's all they do in the 16-hour window. I'm not even joking. You know, And it's, it's crazy. That's what they do in the 16-hour window that they're awake. That's what these devices and these habits that we've gotten into have done to us. And so we need to move in the opposite direction. It has become the paradigm to, uh, it has become the paradigm to just mindlessly consume and destroy all of these beautiful capabilities that you have rather than going out and earning it. Um, and going into the gym, lifting heavy ass stuff, going on runs, uh, doing, uh, doing bodybuilding or doing powerlifting or doing, uh, doing swimming, tennis, soccer, football, basketball, Doing those things, that needs to become the norm because ultimately that gives you the feelings that you get from this, but they're lasting, right? This is fleeting, right? This is fleeting. Me seeing a photo of a person that I know or a, a woman, that, a beautiful looking woman and tapping double tap, ooh, that gives you a rush of dopamine, right? But it's gone two seconds later. So you have to scroll and do it again, scroll and do it again. But when you go to the gym, you lift up heavy ass weights, you eat good food, right? Maybe you go out, you play basketball, you play soccer, then you come home, you work really hard on what you're passionate about, you build a business. Those things give you lasting dopamine, right? They give you this lasting reward. They also build out your prefrontal cortex. They build out your reward system um, and they restore that internal dialogue that's been lost and displaced by social media. We mindlessly scroll through. So Big old rant, but that's the other the other side of things that I really value apart from markets analysis on Twitter is is bringing bringing back these these this this focus on health and physical fitness and really earning it. Um, ultimately, it has become totally normal and ordinary to just be ordinary. The the normal has become this all day long, staring at it twenty four seven. Most people can't identify what it is or why they do it. My aim is to identify exactly what it is, why it's so effective, why people do it. But then also offer the alternative, which is going to the gym, becoming aesthetically pleasing, becoming beautiful, earning it. And uh, th that gives you lasting feelings and skills that you just cannot get anywhere else. Beautifully said, man. I mean, that's I couldn't agree more. It's proof of work, right? Like, and that's why we resonate so strongly with with mm -hmm. Bitcoin. And uh, it's funny too, because yeah, yeah. I mean, I played soccer my whole life, played in college, and I was never the most uh, skilled player. So I was, you know, I was a center back and kind of just threw my body on the line, athletic but not skilled as much as everyone else. And uh, yeah, I so I had to work hard. I just fucking worked my ass off. You know, I was in the best fitness, um, and I just like kept going. Um, and to me. That was how I always set myself apart. And that just foundationally, the discipline and, you know, you get in these high level teams and, and, and you get infuriated when you have teammates who are like super skilled, super talented, and they just don't work that hard. You know, they're always like half jogging around. They're not tracking back for balls like, you know, the, the, those type of guys. Right. And um, that mindset for me completely translated to, you know, Bitcoin and just life. Right. And it's wild it's actually insane right now for young men um, in our, in our age group that, yeah, they, they don't do much. And you might think that there's like a gym culture really, but the majority of, of people our age are, are just, you know, drinking, watching sports, gambling, you know, Netflixing and, and ordering food. And, and it's a travesty really. 
and that's precisely why why we you know why it's 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 never been easier no. it's never been easier to succeed because the so bar <laughs> is all the way down here on the floor. it's so bad it's never been easier to be like in the top one percent of like anything it doesn't even matter what your metric is like even if your mindset happiness fulfillment and it's so true like you know that's why I do the stuff that I do, like go out and do these intense hikes. Cause it's like, there's nothing more fulfilling than that. And yeah, it, it sucks uh, from a physical perspective. It's, it's very challenging, but when you actually accomplish something or you put months and months of work into a business or, or a book or an article or anything, I mean, the sense of accomplishment you get from that is it's incomprehensible compared to, yeah, these short dopamine hits you're getting from social media. So it's, it's for me, it's, it's the crux of society right now. Uh, I struggle with it still, you know, because I want to empower people, want to educate people, but I also don't want to spend a lot of time on social media. So it's a challenge and I'm finding ways, but you know, that's why we're having a great conversation right now. So I'm very thankful for, you know, the connections I've made on, on Twitter and the like, because it's, it's changed my life. But you really have to set boundaries and, and be deliberate about it. And you have to be deliberate about anything. Because if you do the norms of society, you're just going to be another average person. So don't confine to being average. Like, fucking just do something that everyone's like, oh, wow, like, you're doing that. Or like, you seem like, yeah, you know, what's wrong? I just want to fucking live a life that's worth living. That's what's wrong. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and people, people, people on the outside, you know, who haven't done these things, they may find it difficult. They may say, well, it's so difficult. Well, it's not, you know, it's difficult initially to stop consuming because the reason that these, these businesses are so successful is because they keep you staring at your screen. But if you drop Instagram, right, I have it on my phone, but I have it for business purposes. If you drop Instagram, if you drop Snapchat, what adult Please, male is still yeah. on Snapchat? No, I'm sorry, you're I'm right. Sorry. You're right. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> Completely, and it, it it irks the hell out of me when I see when I see people in public my age, dudes, twenty two year old dudes who are taking selfies. You know, if you're with your girlfriend, if you're with your wife, if you're with your family, if you're doing it for a beautiful sunset, that's awesome. But if you are if you are taking a selfie to send to another it, Snapchat, no, I don't, I don't dig it. Not as a twenty two year old guy, right? The the cutoff is when you leave college. Like I'll say, I'll give the college guys some slack. The cutoff is when you leave college, but. Deleting all these things off your phone, yeah, you're going to have withdrawals. It's like drugs. The reason that the withdrawals are similar to drugs is specifically because why do you think these companies are so successful, right? It leverages that 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 quick fire, that dopamine hit, that, that we're so, we become so addicted to as humans. Get rid of it, right? You get rid of it a few days, yeah. But then ultimately, you'll become hooked on these other things. And it sounds cliche to say like, oh, you're hooked on the gym, but you are. You become It becomes part of your routine the same way that Getting out of bed and staring at your phone is part of your routine. Going to the gym and lifting something heavy as fuck is part of your routine. But guess what? Instead of having to check your phone every five minutes, once you lift, you're chilling for the day. For the next 24 hours till you go to the gym again, you're chilling. And you've got all of that, all of that reward that you need to fuel you. And it's, it's lasting. It's more lasting. It gives you more fulfillment. And so people will say from the outside, well, it's difficult. Initially, it's difficult. It's an easy thing to do. It's hard but it is easy, right? It's difficult. Um, 
but once you get going, it's difficult to stop. Once you build that momentum, it's difficult yeah, to stop. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, I, I've found that, you know, people just need to fill their time, you know, with get busier. Like, why do you have five hours at the end of the day where you can just sit on your couch and watch Netflix and scroll? Yeah, people's, people's perception of busy is so destroyed. Somebody, for example, um, somebody that I know uh, works at a coffee shop. They have one shift every single day. It's four hours. And they say, I'm busy. Their four-hour shift is the only thing in the day that they do every single weekday. And they say that I'm busy, right? Our perception of busy, completely fucking destroyed. Yeah, when people just say, you know, I don't have time for X, it's just like your prioritization, right? Like, what are you going to prioritize? And I do a lot of different stuff. And I still like, I'm like, ah, I'm on social media too much. Like, I need to be better. It's, you know, it could be a structural thing, like block off your calendar or, you know, do something where you physically just aren't on your phone. Like, if you go to the gym, put it on airplane mode. That's it. If you're, you know, going a hike, like leave it leave in your, it in back. your glove yeah, or, or leave, leave it at all. Like you don't need music or buy an iPod. I don't even know, like figure it out if it's that bad. And once you realize that it's not, you know, once you make some progression, then you're going to realize how easy it is and how much better you feel. Um, but you got to stick with it. So yeah, that's, uh, we're on the right. same page there, brother. So I love it. And this has been a great chat. It's uh, it's awesome to connect finally, um, virtually in person, I guess. But uh, where can people find you and all your really insightful market analysis work? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, great conversation, man. Long time coming. Happy we finally got to meet, even if it's over a screen. I'll I'll meet you at a conference at some point in person. We'll we'll grab some steaks. And get a lift in. But um, you could find me just first name, last name on Twitter at Joe Consorti, really simple. And you could also go to the BitcoinLayer.com to get my more long form market commentary uh, in both video, podcast and written form. Awesome. Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time.